welcome to the Keep Running podcast with me, Rachel Stringer. And me, Amana Rai. If you're listening to us now, then you're probably a runner, thinking about becoming a runner, or you just want to hear some inspiring stories. Each week on our podcast, we will be sharing our own running experiences and chatting to some amazing and inspiring running people. And hopefully this all gives you an extra little bounce in your step for your next run. Today's guest has gone from humble beginnings as a runner to on her debut at the London Marathon in 2016, finishing 13th female overall in the mass participation race with a super fast two hours and 45 minutes. Not satisfied with that, the following year she went 12 places better and finished first in the mass race of the London Marathon with an even faster time of two hours and 37 minutes which led to her first England vest. This was, in her own words, the breakthrough that broke her. Our guest today is physio and runner Anna Boniface. Welcome, Anna, to the Keep Running podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, First question, actually. You obviously juggle your job as a physio and your running career, and we saw that you've been in ICU during this pandemic. I mean, how on earth was that to be amongst it all well um, I actually liked it so much that I went for a full-time job there so I'm just about to finish my current job and go back to ICU sort of full-time so is it weird to say that I really enjoyed working in a pandemic um I I don't know it was it was bizarre like it was quite surreal but I really enjoyed enjoyed the work and the camaraderie of it um I mean obviously what we saw was quite you know horrendous but the way that everyone and the NHS sort of got together was pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, it was it was great, horrific, but great if that makes sense. So, because you, you work in respiratory clinics with your physiotherapy as well, so are you changing jobs slightly? Are you going from doing your physio to more respiratory work, or what is the job that you're going to go to in ICU? So um, I used to do like a lot of respiratory physio, but with sort of my running, um, I decided to have a bit of a career change. So I'm just leaving a job working with the police doing intensive rehab, which is an amazing job. It's called Flint House and it's an incredible center for for police officers. But kind of going back to ICU during the pandemic, I seconded my employee, you know, paid my wages when I worked during COVID. Um, And I just refound my love for it. I do some kind of private respiratory work um, alongside of it, but I had a bit of a career change and I was doing the kind of normal physio of like knee pain and back pain, which for me was quite alien, but got a bit of upskilling of that, which was helpful. Well, Anna, well, congratulations on your new job. All the best in your new role. Um, So each week we start our podcast with five quick fire questions. So our first question for you today is, why do you run? Oh, well, it's pretty great, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think <laughs> the, thing, the main reason why I run is I just, I love that high that you get from it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a race, but, you know, when you just have a really good session or you've just had a really great run or, you know, the best thing is that post-race sort of endorphin. Like for me, that there's nothing like that. Um and that's what I sort of love is that sort of endorphin kick and that run as high as they call it. And I think that's what's quite addictive about running. I mean, it's also a very easy way to exercise and keep healthy and you just get your trainers. You can go and do it anywhere. So it's, yeah, it's very, 
easy to do as well. It's the poor man's sport, isn't it? That's why it's so accessible to all of us, which I love about it. Um, Our second question is, who inspires you, Anna? Um, I I take a lot of inspiration from the people I train with. So the girls that I, I train with and I see them improve and I see them race. And, you know, when you sort of, I'm a big believer of kind of group training and you know, being in an environment where everyone's sort of building each other up. And I'm very much of this sort of attitude that success breeds success. So when, so when your teammates are doing really well, your training partners are doing well, that really spurs you on. So mainly it's the girls I train with. They're the people who really sort of inspire me. And I'm so interested to know what you'll say to this one, but what is your greatest running achievement? Um, I'd actually say my first marathon. Um, like I just didn't know what to expect at all. And I, I remember just running around and having like the best time. And then obviously it gets towards the end and it's quite, quite hard, but I was just like, whoa, this is actually quite good. Like I could actually do something of the marathon a little bit more, but yeah, it kind of made me believe in myself a lot more and take things a bit more seriously. But I just loved the marathon. It made me fall in love with the distance and I just had so much fun doing it. I love that. We'll chat about that in more detail a bit later because obviously your debut marathon is one of our our hot topics we're going to chat to you about. Um, Next up though, your best piece of advice you've been given or actually you've given out in your running career to date. Um, I've learned this the, the very hard way, but I would just say just patience. Like even when things are going really, really well, just still be patient because I think particularly, you know, when you're just having each race, you get a PB or each training session, you nail. it's really easy to get caught up in that and sometimes just push a little bit too hard or just want success too quickly. So sometimes that holding back and aiming for consistency is, is a bit better. And I know runners can be quite greedy of, oh, I'm not satisfied with that. I want to get, I want to get it a bit more. I want to get that time down more. So Sometimes just patience and that slower approach, I think, is better in the long run. We are greedy. We always want more, don't we? <laughs> yeah. And a quote which never fails to brighten your day. I really like the quote, um, keep showing up. So the marathon runner Des Linden says this quite a lot. And I'm a big believer of that. And when things are quite tough, it's just something I say to myself, let's just keep showing up, keep showing up. Because even when things aren't going well, you never know when things can change. But if you just keep at it, then, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. On the back of that, actually, um, I know you have a tattoo, Run Brave, on, on your inside of your wrist. Um, do you ever kind of, I guess, look to that for motivation or inspiration during runs or when the going gets tough? Is that why you have it? I caught that's my marathon mantra. So I'm a big fan of um, the runner Alexi Papas, and she has some great quotes. So if anyone needs some good quotes, she's a person to go to. Um, so that's something that she I kind of got from her. And it's my marathon mantra. So when I'm in like a race and I'm finding things tough, I use like just a quick power phrase to try and bring me back into the moment and to help me focus. Because you know when your mind starts to mm. wander when things are getting tough, you're like, oh, I can't do this. That sort of just brings me back. So that's what I, I use. I used to write it in like permanent pen on my hand. So I was like, I might as well just get this like inked into my skin permanently. I feel like the arrow is very Hunger Games-esque as well. It is a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Katniss Evergreen. Yes, I love it. Uh, anyway, let's go on to the London Marathon 
in 2017, take us back to that moment where it was your second marathon. You towed the start line in the mass participation race. Um, we know what happens. We just said it in the introduction. But tell our listeners what happened on that day in 2017. Oh, it was it was a great day. I'm not going to lie. I mean, uh, it just it's really it was quite strange in the fact that I think I've had this twice in my whole running career where I stood on the start line and I just had so much self-belief and I just knew I was going to run that time. I know it sounds re- I don't want to sound arrogant, but I just knew I was going to run that time. I just it was weird. I've only had it like a couple of times happen, but I think just because I my training had indicated that was what I could do. And yeah, I just had so much self-belief and I just think it really goes about the power of the mind. And I stood in that start line and I just knew that was going to be my day. I mean, I'd worked very hard for it. So, you know, that was backed by a lot of training and yeah, it was just amazing. And it was, the, you know, the, I don't know run the London marathon, they know what it's like, but when you're sort of the first woman, essentially, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. And everyone's just like yelling at you and, I had a lot of people out on the course supporting me and oh yeah it was just like nothing else and to execute a plan that you had sought out with your coach and it to go obviously not perfectly because it is a marathon but for it to go as well as it could it yeah it's just great to kind of execute that and just deliver it and when you were running did you realize that you were the first female so bizarrely, as I, we, I kind of went off and I realized there was two other girls that I was running with. And they were both athletes that I knew through running the Hampshire League cross country. So it was, it was quite nice. It kind of just felt like, oh, this is just a Hampshire League cross country. I know these, both these girls. We own clubs local to each other. Um, and then I went for a really bad patch, sort of as from mile eight. Um, and over Tower Bridge, I felt horrific. And I was still with these girls at this point. And then I then f- felt really good again. I just took some water and I just then dropped them. They just kind of went behind. And then I was like, oh, okay, I think I might be the first woman. And then people were shouting that at me. So I was like, I'm the first woman. Just just run as fast as you can and try and maintain <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, what was the reaction like from the spectators on the side at their face, I guess, their realisation that you were probably running against all these men and you were the only lady there? Um. Yeah, I think... I think so. Like they were definitely sh- shouting first comment, but a lot of people were also kind of laughing at me because I had the race number six six six, which the devil. I know, the devil. I know. A lot of people were like, "Oh, you don't want that number," but I was like, six six six, we'll rock it." So all the jokes around me were laughing at me as they kind of came and chat because sometimes we chat a little bit at the beginning, and they're like, "Oh, yeah. that's not a great number, is it?" And I was like, oh, "I'm gonna rock it. It's fine." Um, so that was people were laughing a bit at that, but no, of course, like people were kind of saying first women cheering you on probably a little bit more than you would than you would normally get, I guess. You said at mile eight you had a bad moment. That's early to kind of be struggling. How did you overcome that? Because obviously you said on the start line that you felt great and you knew it was going to be your day, but kind of going a little bit downhill at mile eight, that was. You know, you've got so many more miles, 18 of them still to go. Oh, God. Like, I'm not, I struggled for most of them. You know, when it's normally you get to, they say, oh, it's um, halfway is 20 miles or it's 20 miles just tempo and then it's a six mile race. For me, it was hard from mile eight pretty much. I did have better patches, but I don't know. I just was able to run at sort of that high intensity and just maintain it. 
because I was fairly even on my splits, but I started just to suffer. And a lot of that was attributed due to um, doing a bit of a schoolboy error of taking five caffeine gels. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I don't know what went through my mind that morning, but I had five caffeine gels. So I think that was some of the issue. And as soon as I got some water on board, I felt it did feel better. But I was redlining it pretty much the whole way. Um, so it was definitely not my, my first marathon when I was waving and smiling and being all cocky. Um, it was head down and just run. And then you cross the finish line, obviously, as the first female in the mass participation race. What actually happened? Did you get a special medal? Was there any, was there any different? It wasn't really any different. Like, I crossed the line and then I felt very unwell and I was just like, never again. <laughs> and I, had to, I think I briefly went to the medical tent. I can't really remember. And then I was walking through, you know, you do that walkthrough and it was really empty. That's kind of what I remember. And then all the sort of volunteers were like, oh, you're the first woman. And I was like, oh, you know, you get a bit emotional. I was like, oh, I'm the first woman. <laughs> um, and I've got a PB. And then, yeah, you just get your stuff. And they kind of make you, they kind of just case say that. But otherwise, it's basically the same. Um, but yeah, that was just it. And then you then come out and then my coach was there. And that was like quite a special moment when you see sort of everyone who's helped you kind of get to that point. Yeah, I mean... I just, yeah, I didn't know what was going to happen for the first female. You've just kind of told us and everyone. So thank you very much for sharing that. I absolutely love that story and wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth, as they say. But um, Anna, before we kind of go on what happened next, I'd actually like to take you back and take our audience back and kind of go back to where running started for you. Because in your own words, you were kind of grew up being the middle of the pack runner. So how did you go from there and what was that journey to the start line of the London Marathon in 2017? So I always pinpoint sort of the changing moment for me um, doing a park. Well, we always do a park run on Christmas Day. It's sort of what we do with, with my family. And I think it was the park run Christmas Day 2014. So we're just going in 2015. And I'd always I wanted my kind of goals in running was to break. 90 minutes for a half marathon, 40 minutes for a 10K, 20 minutes for a 5K, that kind of classic three things. Um, and I just did park run on Christmas Day and kind of just broke 20 minutes for the first time. And I was really far off it. Like I would always run 21 minutes or thereabouts. And I was like, what? This is amazing. And I was so, so happy. And from then on, things just started to, to change for me. Um, and that was a really big sort of self-belief moment of running like 1950 or something like that um and I think at the time I was quite young in my career and I had a bit more time to start running a bit more I guess so I think I was just training a little bit more um and I think a lot of it was the sort of self-belief because I'd gone through this period of time of just being this runner that I knew I could be better and I remember my parents saying why do you what are you trying to get out of running? You're not going to be, you're not, you, you're not going to be sort of where you think you are. But I just had this enormous sort of ambition to do better. And my sort of aspirational goal was to get, you know, you can get those bibs with your surname on it. That was like my dream. I was like, if I get that, I am, I've made my life to get the, the Boniface bib. Um, and eventually it did happen, but that was sort of my life goal. And yeah, that's sort of the mo the moment it all changed was that park run for me. And interestingly, with with you, Anna, I think is that you came through the traditional 
um, club route, which I think a lot of runners now ha- don't actually come through that route. So I know that Redden Athletics Club is um, very close to your heart and has ha- had a big role in your running. But can you talk us through really what Reading Athletics Club and the club system in the UK does actually mean to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the club system is is brilliant. And I feel very fortunate to come up through the club system because I think you do learn a lot about running and you try out a lot of different things. And I think a lot of runners just automatically go to road running and road running is very special. But, you know, track and cross country and just sort of getting a bit of history and respect for the more of the traditions of the sport is quite is quite nice, actually. And, you know, you get that team team kind of camaraderie because you know like cross country is and track it is an individual sport but when you're kind of doing those league fixtures and those it is a team event like trying to go up through the league on track track matches and you know cross country you know winning the Hampshire league we only did that this year we did that for the first time and it's a really big deal and it's really nice to do that together so you kind of have that individual part but also that team part too and yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And I love cross country. And I think that's really shaped me as a runner. Um, it's taken me a while to fall in love with the track, but I do enjoy the track too. And it's great. So I'd really, you know, recommend people to get involved with athletics clubs because um, I think it's a different side of running. I was nodding my head all the way through and agreeing with you until you said, I love cross country. There's like, no, 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 we're not friends. We can't be friends. Um, but apart from that, great, Anna. Love it all. But because um, my club was City of Norwich when yeah. I was growing up and again, had the same experience of you, like did some great things with my mates. Um, we used to be great at the road relays, actually, like junior oh. road relays. I remember winning suitcases and things down at Older Shot, which was so much fun. Um, oh, but can you talk us through? I love those but talk us through your week then does it still look like uh, a session on Tuesday Thursday and Saturday that's what I did growing up what does it look like now I mean the classic sort of club system is that session Tuesday Thursday isn't it it's club night um for me it's a bit bit different with the pandemic it's all kind of been a bit shaken up but at the moment, my coach is playing around with giving us more recovery between sessions. So we did a session on a Friday night, which was very bizarre. Um, but it has traditionally, and up until more recently, fitted that Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday sort of session date. Um, and then easy days in between and then a long run on the Sunday. Um, but we're changing things up a little bit at the moment. And do you have a favorite session that you do with your training group? Oh, well, go on, pen and paper at the ready. I want it. I want it. <laughs> wow. Are you asking me this as a marathon runner or a middle distance runner? Because I'm training in a middle distance group at the moment. And honestly, I have never known anything like some of the middle distance training sessions. They're so hard, but so short. <laughs> like, I've done some stuff where I've been like to my coach, 10 minutes recovery, I'll behave. I won't need that. And I literally, <laughs> every second, he was like, You've got you've got one minute left. I was like, I need I need more. <laughs> um, so um, my favorite session is I quite like mile reps on the track. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's a really staple, you know, staple session and for middle distance runners and for marathon runners. You know, it's great, very versatile. Um, I also like long runs, but doing stuff at a bit of pace. So doing little bits of tempo in the long run because I get a bit bored in the long run these days. Um, so I like to mix it up a little bit and have something to focus on. Um, 
But one thing that I did, and I say this is probably the hardest thing I've ever done as a runner, is something called the Cosman test. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have. I can't remember exactly what it is. Please tell us. Oh, my life. Literally, I thought I was going to die. So <laughs> it's a, a, a predictor for a 1,500-meter time. And I've, last yes. season, I was playing around with going back to a bit of middle-distance stuff. And it's one minute flat out. Then you have um, three minutes recovery, one minute flat out, two minutes recovery, one minute flat out, one minute recovery, and then one minute flat out. So it's four minutes of effort. By the second sort of minute, I was like, I don't know if I can finish it. And oh, just and the lat take was unreal. And oh, yeah, it was so hard. Like that, that, that probably excels some of the really tough marathon sessions I've done. That sounds literally like I used to do a session similar for 800 meter training when I back in the day. And my coaches used to do it, sounds so simple two times 400 meters oh. with flat out with like six minutes in between. But you try and run like two sub 60s, probably trying to run like 58 seconds. And I can tell you, I'd have that on my session and I'd look at it like weeks to come, like weeks prior to, sorry, and be like, I think I might be ill that week. It's just the greatest predictor, but it's hell on earth. Oh, and you get more nervous for that kind of session than racing. I get nervous yeah, for absolutely. Like that. I'm like, oh my god, I don't, know, I can't do it. But um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it is interesting, and it's really hard. And I think middle distance training is undervalued of how tough it is. And training with the Regen Athletics Club obviously gives you a group to train with. And I know you talk a lot about running with a group is important. You mentioned it in the introduction. But what do you think the benefit is with training with a, a group? And why is that so important to you and your running? I think I've, I've always trained with a group for sessions. It's been quite rare, apart from a couple of periods of time where I've not trained with a group. So for me, that's what's, that's what's normal. And I really like the camaraderie of it. So, you know, when you're having a tough session to sort of endure it with someone else and you're sort of dying on the track after and you sort of do that that little high five at the end of we got it through. Um, and I just think that you gain a lot more out of training with a group, providing the, the, the dynamics of it are good. So some of my better sessions have been, we call it the pain train, basically we do mile reps where we're on the track we have a leader of the train who's driving it and every 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 sort of lap someone will take it in turns you're sharing the workload and it's that team approach to training where you'll take a little bit on and you're not trying to outrace each other you've got to be you get given you know the splits that you need to hit you work together you share the load and i think that's really nice when you get the dynamics work if you can work training like that you can really help each other out and get a lot more out of it that really takes me back to many an evening in Norwich, racing around on the floodlights, freezing cold and going like, go on, someone else take the windy bit this time because it's just too painful. Um, I've seen that on your on your Instagram. I've seen your pain train. So I, I do know what you're talking about. Um, but I'm going to now move the conversation on. I'm going to go to what you spoke about in the introduction, your debut marathon in 2016, where you got the absolutely ridiculous time of 2.45 on your debut where on earth did that come from honestly my aim of so I entered the marathon once I knew I could do under 90 minutes for a half marathon which happened like the year before 
Um, and, you know, that classic sub three, that would be amazing. So, you know, anything with a two in it for a marathon, people are like, oh, they like literally like, you know, that's, that's amazing. So that was sort of my aim. And I just remember, didn't have a clue what was going to happen in the January. And I was so clueless. It was almost sort of cute how naive I was about marathon training. And I was kind of doing it off my own back. I didn't really have a coach at the time. And I remember like doing really well in the national cross country. I came 27th. Um, and I was like, oh, I think I'm quite fit actually. And I did Reading half and out of nowhere, I ran under 80 minutes. And I like literally did not expect that. And you know, every time you run, you keep exceeding your expectations. So come like the London Marathon, I was like, I think I'm going to go sub three unless something horrific happens. And I think I planned in the end to try and do just I'm under maybe 250. I kind of thought that's what I could do. But you know, when it goes and like the, it, that plan went out the window and I was just hitting, I didn't, I don't really like to look at my watch when I'm all the time. So I don't really rely on my mile split. So what I do is I write on my hand, like these checkpoints at like 5k, 10k, 10 miles, etc. So as I went through all these checkpoints and looked at what was written on my hand, I was just so far ahead of it. And I was like, I'm probably going to blow up, but whatever. But I didn't. And I don't know, like, it was just bizarre. And I just managed to keep going till the end. And I, it was really nice at the end when I was actually overtaking people. And that kind of brings you, it makes you feel more confident, the fact that you're overtaking people and things like that. And I just had such a good time doing it. I think that was the most important thing for me was just to enjoy it and it was like a big social I just saw so many people I knew and the atmosphere and yeah it, it did kind of kind of come out of nowhere for me but I've always known that my physiology is the longer distance like my my nickname is one pace Boniface because I just hit the pace <laughs> and just sort of maintain it and a fast pace at that so obviously you had an amazing debut marathon in London you went back the following year came first and then you got your first England vest and you actually went out to Toronto to run your third marathon can you tell us what actually happened in Toronto so um it was it was the the debut that didn't really happen unfortunately so um I had a really troublesome build-up I think after the London Marathon, it was really quite overwhelming, sort of what happened. Like, I got my England vest. I got supported by Sockney, who still support me now. And just, I just, yeah, all my dreams sort of just suddenly came true. And just, it all happened at once. And I had that sort of greed for more success. And I should have gone out there more of the mindset of, let's enjoy this experience. But no, I really wanted to go and, you know, smash it. So... I went into my build-up after having done a small track season trying to race 5K. And I was already a little bit sort of overcooked by that point before I even started my build-up. And three weeks in, I was, you know, trying to do what I saw all, all the elite athletes are doing with this huge amount of volume while still working um, and commuting to London. And I had done that leading up to the London Marathon, you know, doing quite a lot of volume, commuting, working a full-time job but I think by that point I was kind of burnt out from that first build-up so I was just knackered and from like the get-go it was just a non-starter really and I just struggled and I remember getting to the point where literally running eight I was getting dropped in the warm-up I couldn't eight minute miling felt like my threshold and I was just so knackered and I was just so worried 
that I wasn't going to make the start line. Um, and my iron levels went through the floor and I just was exhausted and I wasn't fueling myself enough as we'll probably go into. And I remember getting my England kit, which is about six weeks before. And I just burst into tears and I'm not a crier. Like I'm really not a crier. And I was so upset that I had, this should have been like a, a really exciting moment, but I was just like, I'm not going to make it. Um, finding out we had iron deficiency was a good thing because then I started to some treatment for that. I then felt much better. Um, I then sort of managed to get like t- literally two sessions of decent work in. Then I won Bournemouth half marathon and I thought, actually, we're going to get to the start line. And I did a cross country the week before. And the next day I went for this run and this is one week to go into the marathon. And I had this pain in my ankle and, you know, you, you, you know, when you're tapering, you get those sort of niggles and you, you think, you know, those, those almost um, sort of fake maranoia. maranoia. Yeah. And it's just maranoia. It's fine. It's fine. And then I flew out to Toronto, but this pain kept going on and, sort of in the back of my mind, like, I was like, I've not really had this sort of pain before. And I was quite worried about it, but I just sort of kept it to myself. And I'd also had a bone density scan about a month before. And I'd found out that my bone health was compromised. And I was very much sort of on this thin ice at the time. And I was like, just get through Toronto, we'll sort that out afterwards. But unfortunately, it turned out that it was a stress factor. So I started the race, I took dosed up paracetamol and I got to 10, 10 and a half miles. And I had been with this group and I'd been stuck in with the group and it was just getting worse and worse throughout the run. But I just held on to our pacemaker and we went through 10 miles in under 60 minutes. And then it was literally just like half a mile later, I just couldn't run. And I sat on the curbside. I felt a bit like Paula Radcliffe at Athens and then someone picked me up and I went to hospital and that was that. It was a stress fracture. I couldn't finish my England debut, which for me was heartbreaking. Um, and then that, yeah, that, that was my last attempt at the marathon. And that was in autumn of 2017. We are now summer of 2020. I mean, what has the process been like? I, well, you are running, but you're also cycling. How long were you out? How long did you have to take a break for? What was the kind of process of getting back? like i think i spent a lot of time in this sort of denial i mean i i had this bone density scan before as advised by the doctor who diagnosed me of iron deficiency she sort of picked up on things that hadn't really been approached before so by that point you know i hadn't had periods for a number of years and you know i was quite lean at the time i was a bit obsessed with race weight i was very obsessed with mileage i was very obsessive approach to everything I was very fearful of carbs at the time and I had a lot of rules around what I was eating and classic sort of, you know, eating disorder behaviors. And I had this bone density scan and like, I know, I remember sitting in this in-service training at work once about osteoporosis and I remember everyone sort of looking at me and we were talking a lot about the female athlete triad. I just remember all these kind of eyes on me and I was like, that's not me. I've not had a stress fracture. And then for me, like I knew it was wrong, but I was like, well, I've not had a stress fracture. So until that moment, I'm fine. And then that sort of happened. And I think, and I think a lot of other people who've sort of had this relative energy deficiency in sport or issues of eating within sort of running or endurance sport can empathize with this or resonate with it. And the fact that you get to this point where your body just says no more. 
And it's often at a point where you're actually running really, really well because you have this brief period of time where everything goes in your favor. And then suddenly it's like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And then you just get injury after injury, niggle, ill illnesses, everything. So I, I went to see a sports medicine doctor and she sort of sat me down, diagnosed me with this and said I had a stress fracture, which I, I knew. And I was like, well, I'm doing the London Marathon in April. And she's like, you're not. And I'm like, yes, I am. Because you see on social media, loads of athletes, they have a stress fracture. They're back running in six weeks. And that was what I thought was going to happen. But I mean, I didn't run a step apart from the Alter G. I did a bit of Alter G as from the January, but I didn't run properly until the May. And the May, it was a very slow run walk. And if I could go back all again, I would have taken rest but mentally I wasn't ready to do that so I did that classic well you know all the athletes I see they hit the they hit the cross training really really hard and that's what I did and you know I was swimming I was aqua jogging then biking when I was allowed to and I just didn't give my body that initial time to rest I think I really prolonged my recovery I mean not just for my stress fracture. my stress fracture took longer to heal because I wasn't allowing my body to regain that sort of energy balance um and I just prolonged that even fracture healing. I was in the boot longer than we predicted. Um, and then the, it just was a very long process. And I started running again. I then got back really fit. I was a year out of competition. I did the Hampshire Lee cross country, which was exactly a year from my last competition. Did really well. And then I just, I just then hit this stage of I got a cold and I could basically then had no energy. And I was just knackered. And I was still in this energy deficit and it's taken me a really long time to really slowly sort of build back with my relationship of food and exercise. And it's still very much an ongoing journey and I'm not there yet. I mean, at the moment, I've just been getting injury after injury. I'm only running three times a week at the moment. And I think it is a really long haul process. And I think anyone who's sort of gone through this can resonate with it. Yeah, I mean, I had um, two stress fractures in my back when I was at uni, when I was at Loughborough, actually. So they were in my sacrum. Um, and I think, again, you have your bone density scan. Like, was given, what was it, vitamin, what's the sunlight? Vitamin D? Yeah. I think I was given to try and um, boost that. And actually, thankfully, I was put on crutches because there's not much you can do for sacrum. Um, so I was put on crutches and was actually quite strict. My parents were pretty strict to me being like, you're not doing anything. I carried on going out to South Africa where I was going out for a training camp. So I did that and literally was just walking. So my friends who, my training partners who I was with at the time were pretty strict because I think I was the first one in the group that had a stress fracture. But um, what I kind of wanted to pick up from what you said is, I guess one of the massive signs for youngsters, and that's probably from club athletics, I've been in it, Amana has, you have, is when you're growing up, you normalize not having a period, or a lot of girls like, yeah, we're running fast, we have a period. Why is that not a sign that girls should go, this isn't right? And why don't people pick up on that? Because it leads to these problems. I mean, did you find that in your group? Have, have you found that people kind of normalize that in the past? At the time I was training with boys, um, mainly, I wasn't really training with many girls and I trained with girls before, but it just was not something we talked about at the time. And mm. It wasn't something that I'd spoken with with my coach until sort of things started 
to unravel. Um, and I just think it was at the time, even just a couple of years ago, it just wasn't one of those things spoken about. And I remember very occasionally maybe having the conversation, but, you know, I think it was just, you know, deemed as something that was normal and not something to be concerning about. And we, you always see, though, it happen, but you just don't really talk about it. Of You know, that girl who's too skinny, she has a really good season, and all of a sudden she's never been seen again. And it really breaks my heart that this is happening, that, you know, you see it time and time again. You see some come up through the through sort of the club system. They have a really good season. And then what's happened to them? They're gone. But you all know the story that's going to happen. But no one sort of intervenes. And I think it's difficult to intervene as a teammate or, or a coach because often at that time where you're starting to have those concerns, the athlete's actually running really, really well. So why are you going to sort of intervene when they're running so good? And they're not going to listen mm. because they're like, well, I'm running so good. What's the problem? And it's about that exactly. sort of slowing down at that point. And it is a really difficult subject to approach. And it's sort of more of that dealing with the culture of it and the fact that instead of approaching it when it's already happening, to try and prevent it a bit more. Hannah, I think you're definitely right. And I think it is unfortunately one of the saddest things that we do see in our sport. So thank you for sharing your story and um, helping raise awareness around it. Um, you touched on the energy deficiency, also known as REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport and the Female Athlete Triad. For our listeners that haven't come across this before could you just explain exactly what you meant by that and what that means so it was more deemed as a female athlete triad but it's now evolved into something called reds or relative energy deficiency in sports because um we've understood that it now can affect multiple different systems and it also affects male athletes and not just athletes either just you know your gym goers regular exercises so what this sort of relative energy deficiency in sport is that there's not a balance between how much energy you're putting in, aka how much you're eating, in like alongside with um, what your body needs for survival. So say, for example, you lay in bed all day, your basic metabolic rate, and then on top of that, your training requirements. So you've got an imbalance. You're not getting enough energy in for the, the output. So your body then goes into this energy kind of conservation mode so it's sort of like you know when your iphone is running out of battery and it goes into this lower pa low power mode and it switches yeah, yeah all, all the time, time. <laughs> and it goes down onto the, it switches off all the non-essential apps that's sort of what your body does and kind of means of survival because it's always going to prioritize movement so you know back in the caveman days you've got to move for survival haven't you to keep yourself going to keep yourself moving to be able to cut like hunt stuff like that so it goes into that. So it switches off non-essential processes. So that's, for example, for females having periods, your kind of reproductive system, it downregulates your hormones, which has an effect on your bone health. It affects your GI system, your immunity, it affects your heart function and your sort of cardiovascular health. All these different systems, it has a direct interplay and it also massively affects your performance as well. Um, so it has a negative consequence, not just on sort of your bone health, for the stress fractures, which is typically known as, but also multiple different systems. And it has, you know, quite uh, awful, awful effect, really. And I guess, is that why it's changed from the female athlete triad to red S? Because it's not just females, is it? It can be applicable to males as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it very much does affect males in, in, in running and you do see that. But I think particularly, I think cycling is a real 
area where it's hitting male athletes quite a lot um, because they're also in a non-weight bearing sport. So they're on bikes, they don't load their bones. So they're actually getting even worse bone health. And I think some of this research that comes out of male cyclists, their bone health is horrific. And, you know, Chris Boardman, very well-known cyclist, he retired in his 30s because of osteoporosis. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, so even the top, top guys are still having problems. Um, just need to look after your body a bit more. But Anna, we're going to go on now to the physio clinic with Anna Boniface. Um, basically, I want to know, what do people come to you with the most? Runners, triathletes, cyclists. And you're just like, you're so silly. You should have stopped X. Oh. You should have stopped 10 days. What is the most common problem that we as silly athletes come to you complaining about? It's all the chronic overuse injuries, always. And I would say a lot of the time it's stuff around the foot and ankle. I'd say the most common is an Achilles tendinopathy. That is a classic runner's injury. <laughs> and what do we do if people are listening going, oh, yeah, that's me, They're turning a bit um, pink and going, oh, I was about to book a physio appointment. What do people do if they have Achilles tendinopathy? Well, <laughs> First of all, the first thing to address is your load management. So I'm not a fan of completely pulling people from running, but it does need an element of relative rest. So it's kind of trying to find that tipping point. So your key signs of when a tendon isn't happy is that it will be really stiff, really sore um, in the morning. So it's that first sort of morning sign. And if it's really painful in the morning, that's when you probably, it's probably telling you what you did the day before wasn't right. So it's trying to just tweak your training to a point where you're not getting that morning flare up. Um, and just to make it a little bit more manageable and less irritable in that, in that kind of 24 to 40 hour, eight hour period after you like your run or your training. So sometimes a really nasty, grotty Achilles does need a bit of rest to get it going of the rehab, settle it down. But then it's just finding your tipping point and just realizing, you know, working out what you can do with running where it doesn't flare it up. So it's that load management. Um, another thing that's really, really important and what the literature says is you've got to strengthen the tendon and you've got to really, really load it quite hard. So we, we move away from sort of stretching tendons now and it's more about doing that strengthening. So it's high load strength work for that tendon so typically it's that heel raise exercise um but exercise i like to say is sort of like medicine you've got to get the dosage right so i can't tell you how many reps and sets you should be doing and how much weight you should be putting through it or if you do it on single or double leg that's kind of individualized and you need to get that right for each person how often you do it but it's got to be quite hard and it's got to really load that tendon up as much as possible um there is some sort of literature saying that um, using like foot um, orthotics can be helpful. But I think the main thing is load management and then tissue capacity. So building the strength up in that, in that tendon with calf raises, heel raises, whatever you want to call it, and then getting your load management right. So if you're hobbling the next day after your run, you need to dial it in a little bit. And it doesn't necessarily mean stop running. It might just be that you need to bring back the amount of volume you're doing. Or at the moment, I've got plantar fasciitis, so I can only run every other day. Um, but it's keeping me running and it's my foot is getting better slowly. I'm loving the uh, physio clinic with Anna here. Um, but Anna, what is next for you with your running and your running career? I mean... <laughs> I just want to be healthy and injury free at the moment. Um, 
I've very much had the last three years, which has been really tantalizing of getting back, getting fit, getting injured or having low iron again or having no energy. And it just breaks my heart every time to have to go back to square one. So my aim is just to try and get, I mean, in a way sort of, it's been a great time to be injured during this time because I can step back and I've been trying to work on all my injury issues and getting on top of them. So that's sort of my aim is to get healthy, be as injury free as possible, get on top of all these niggles and get back to, you know, being able to build up a bit of consistency. I mean, one day I would love to go back to the marathon, but at the moment I just can't. So for me, it's yeah, just to be able to run and be able to run regularly. Yeah, well, the beautiful thing about long distance running marathons, ultras, is that it does favor those people who, you know, are getting a bit older. Like, you know, we can run marathons and ultras until we're, gosh, I don't know, in our 40s, uh, in our 50s. Like, it's been done. So I think all three of us have got time on our hands for sure. And we wish you all the best in your journey to getting that consistency back and getting to that level that we've seen you do in those years gone by. The 237. Regardless of what happens, Anna is phenomenal. Um, I'd love to run that kind of time in any capacity in the near future. Um, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with us. I've really, really enjoyed it. I've sat back and I've loved to actually listen rather than like feed you loads of questions, which has been so nice. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Anna. Having Anna on was so great. She speaks so openly about so many topics. And it was the first time we've have some, we've had someone on the podcast who has won the mass race at the London Marathon. That's actually a first for us. I cannot begin to imagine what it must have been like for Anna uh, finishing first amongst probably quite a lot of men. And like she said, the, the carpet at the end, if anyone has run the London Marathon, is usually really busy. It was really quiet. That must be quite an odd experience. But I am a little bit disappointed that she didn't get any special medal. I must say, I would have thought there may have been something a little different. I'm just saying, I'm not criticizing, but I'm just putting my hands up and saying that surprised me. But all the same, 237, blooming awesome. I agree. I thought that there would be something special for her, a special medal. I Personally, I would have given her a trophy. But I loved having Anna on today. Her story is so good and she is just amazing. And I really, really respect and have a lot of time for her sharing her story, particularly around uh, Red S and the struggles that she's had around food and bone density and all of that because it is a big issue within our sport and I do believe that people like Anna talking about these things openly and sharing her experiences hopefully will raise awareness amongst our sport and hopefully help even just one person it makes such a difference so thank you so much for Anna for sharing that not only on our podcast but I know she's done a lot of other articles as well on it um so I do recommend following Anna she is at Anna underscore Boniface on Instagram. But unfortunately, that is all that we have time for this week. And if you would like to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Amana underscore Rye. And I'm at Rachel double underscore Stringer. So thank you for listening. And until next time, keep running. Keep running.